Chapter 19 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 19. Leave 1. The Armenian Patriarch, the Islands of Achtama, an Armenian Church, History of the Convent, Pass into Mucus, the district of Mucus, of Shatak, of Nordos, an Astorian village, encampments, Mount Ararat, Mar Shamon, Julameric, Valley of Diz, Pass into Jelu, Nestorian district of Jelu, an ancient church, the bishop, district of Baz, of Tacoma, return to Mosul. Sickness had overcome both Dr. Sandwith and Mr. Cooper. A return to the burning plains of Assyria might have proved fatal, and I advised them to seek, without further delay, the cooler climate of Europe. Mr. Walpole, too, who had been long suffering from fever, now determined upon quitting my party and taking the direct road to Erzurum. In the afternoon of the 12th of August, I left the gates of the convent of Yediklissia with Mr. Hormod's Rasan. Once more, I was alone with my faithful friend and we trod together the winding pathway which led down the mountainside. We had both been suffering from fever, but we still had strength to meet its attacks, and to bear cheerfully, now unhindered, the difficulties and anxieties of our wandering life. We made a short journey of three and a half hours to the pleasant village of Artamit, or Adramit, and encamped beneath its fruit trees in a garden near the lake. Our path on the following day led through a hilly district, sometimes edging a deep bay, then again winding over a rocky promontory. We crossed by a bridge the large stream which we had seen at Mahmudir, and which here discharged itself into a lake. On the shores of the lake we found many encampments of gypsies, the men to be distinguished by their swarthy countenances, the women and children by their taste for begging. We passed through Vastan, in the 11th century, the residence of the royal Armenian family of Ardsroni, but now a mere village. The convent boat was on the beach, three miles above the usual landing place. Four sturdy monks were about to row it back to the island. As they offered to take me with them, I left the caravan to journey onwards to our night's encamping place, and with Mr. Rassam and the Bayraktar, we were soon gliding over the calm surface of the lake. Not a breeze rippled the blue expanse. The burning rays of the sun were still full upon us, and the panting boatmen were nearly two hours before they reached the convent. In the absence of the patriarch, we were received by an intelligent and courteous monk named Kirikor. His hair, as well as his beard, had never known the scissors, and fell in long, luxuriant curls over his shoulders. It was of jetty black, for he was still a young man, although he had already passed twenty years of a monastic life. He led us through an arched doorway into the spacious courtyard of the convent, and thence into an upper room furnished with comfortable divans for the reception of guests. Tea was brought to us after the Persian fashion, and afterwards a more substantial breakfast, in which the dried fish of the lake formed the principal dish. Kirkor had visited Jerusalem and Constantinople, had read many of the works issued by the Venetian press, and was a man of superior acquirements for an Armenian monk of the Orthodox faith. The church, which is within the convent walls, 
is built of the sandstone of a rich, deep red colour that has been quarried for the turbes of Achlat. Like other religious edifices of the same period and of the same nation, it is in the form of a cross, with a small hexagonal tower, ending in a conical roof, rising above the centre. The interior is simple. A few rude pictures of saints and miracles adorn the walls, and a gilded throne for the patriarch stands near the altar. The exterior, however, is elaborately ornamented with friezes and broad bands of sculpted figures and scrollwork, the upper part being almost covered with bas-reliefs, giving to the whole building a very striking and original appearance. I know of no similar specimen of Armenian architecture, and I regret that time would not allow me to make detailed drawings of the edifice. In a graveyard outside the church are several most elaborately carved tombstones, belonging to the early Armenian patriarchs. That of Zachariah, who died in the 14th century, and who was for one year patriarch of Ekmiadzin, and for nine years at Achtama, is especially worthy of notice for the richness and elegance of its ornaments. The convent and church are built on a small rocky island about five miles from the shore. On an adjacent islet are the ruined walls of a castle partly covered by the rising waters of the lake. Intercourse with the mainland is carried on by the one crank boat which, whenever the weather permits, goes backwards and forwards daily for such provisions as are required by the inmates of the monastery. Khan Mahmud took the place by collecting together the vessels belonging to one for the transport of his troops. Late in the afternoon, accompanied by the Mark Kirikor, I was rowed to the farm and garden belonging to the convent, near the village of Ashayansk. A few monks live on the farm and tend the property of the convent, supplying the patriarch with the produce of the dairy and orchards. They received us very hospitably. Kirikor rode with me on the following morning as far as the large Armenian village of Narek, in which there is a church dedicated to St. George, much frequented in pilgrimage by the Christians of Juan and the surrounding country. It is a strong, solid building, of the same red sandstone as the tombs of Achlat. We had now left the Lake of Juan, and our track led up a deep ravine, which gradually became more narrow as we drew nigh to the high mountains that separated us from the unexplored districts of Mucus and Botan. We passed a large Armenian village, named Pugwans, near which, on the summit of a precipitous rock, stands the ruined castle of Khan Mahmud, the rebel chief. He was the eldest of seven brothers, all of whom governed under him different districts on the borders of the lake, and sorely oppressed the Christian inhabitants. Five were captured and are in banishment. Ere long, we entered a rocky barren tract, patched here and there with fragrant alpine flowers. After climbing up a steep declivity of loose stones, like the moraine of a Swiss glacier, and dragging our horses with much difficulty after us, we found ourselves amidst eternal snow, over which we toiled for nearly two hours, until we reached the crest of the mountain, and looked down into the deep valley of Mucus. This is considered one of the highest passes in Kurdistan, and one of the most difficult for beasts of burden. The descent was even more rapid and precipitous than the ascent, and we could scarcely prevent our weary horses from rolling down into the ravine with the stones which we put into motion at every step. At the foot of the pass is a small Armenian church called Koros Klesia, or the Church of the Cock, because a black cock is said to warn the traveller when the snowdrifts hide the mountain tracks. A ride of eight hours 
brought us to the large scattered village of Mucus, the principal place of the district of the same name. We were met, as we drew near, by the Mudir, or governor, an active bustling Turk, who had already chosen, with the youthful taste of an Eastern, the prettiest spot, a lawn on the banks of the river, for our tents, and had collected provisions for ourselves and our horses. The good Pasha of one had sent to the different chiefs on our way, and had ordered preparation to be everywhere made for our reception. The Tigris is here a deep stream, and is crossed by a stone bridge. The district of Mucus, anciently Mok, and one of the provinces of the Armenian kingdom, had only lately been brought under the authority of the Sultan. Of its sixty villages, forty are inhabited by Christian Armenians. The revenues amounted the year of my visit to little more than a hundred thousand piastres, about nine hundred and ten pounds, of which the village of Mucus contributed forty-two thousand. The garrison consisted of only forty regular soldiers and forty Albanians, so completely had the seizure of their chiefs discouraged the wild Kurdish tribes who dwell in the mountains, and were formerly in open rebellion against the porter. This nomad race forms the principal part of the Muslim population, and is the most fierce and independent in Kurdistan. The Mudir showed the greatest anxiety for our welfare during the night, continually visiting our tents to see that the Albanians he had placed as guards over our property did not fall asleep, as the village swarmed with Bohtan thieves. The principal Armenians of Mucus, with their priests, spent a morning with me. They knew of no ruins or inscriptions in the district, and I found them even more ignorant than their fellow countrymen of the districts around one whose stupidity has passed into a Turkish proverb. We left Mucus early in the afternoon, accompanied by the Mudir. The path following the course of the river leads to Sert Jezirech and the Assyrian plains. Next day, we crossed a high mountain ridge covered in some places with snow, separating the district of Mucus from that of Shatak. Its northern and western slopes are the summer pastures of the Miran Kurds, whose flocks were still feeding on the green lawns and in the flowery glens. On the opposite side of the pass, we found an encampment of Hartushi Kurds, under one Omar Aga, a noble old chieftain, who welcomed us with unbounded hospitality and set before me every luxury that he possessed. Shatak, the mudir of which village had prepared for our reception, is a small town rather than a village. It is chiefly inhabited by Armenians, an industrious and hardy race, cultivating the sides of the mountains on which are built their villages, and weaving in considerable quantities the gay-coloured woollen stuffs so much esteemed by the Kurds. In nearly every house was a loom, and the rattle of the shuttle came from almost every door. The mountains produce galls, wool, some of which has the same silky texture as that of Angora, the small underwall of the goat called teftik, a valuable article of export, and minerals. In the bazaar at Chatak, I saw a few English prints and other European wares brought for sale from one. The priests and principal Armenians of the place came to me soon after my arrival, and I learned from them that efforts had already been made to improve the condition of the Christian community, now that the oppressive rule of the Kurdish hereditary chiefs had been succeeded by the more tolerant government of the Sultan. A school had been opened, chiefly by the help of Sharan, the active and liberal Armenian banker of one. The town itself is called by the Armenians Tauk, by the Kurds Shok, and when spoken of together with the numerous villages that surround it, Shatak. 
It stands near the junction of two considerable streams, forming one of the headwaters of the eastern Tigris, and uniting with the Bohdan Su. The largest comes from the district of Albag. These streams, as well as that of Mucus, abound in trout of the most delicious flavour. The entire district contains fifty villages and numerous mesras, or hamlets. The revenues are about the same as those of Mucus. We left Shoch on the 17th August by a bridge crossing the principal stream. The Mudir rode with us up a steep mountain, rising on the very outskirts of the town. After a long and difficult ascent, we came to a broad green platform called Tagu, the pastures of the people of Shatak, and now covered with their tents and flocks. This high ground overlooked the deep valleys through which wound the two streams, and on whose sides were many smiling gardens and villages. Crossing a high mountain pass, on which snow still lingered, we descended into a deep valley like that of Shatak, chiefly cultivated by Armenians. We crossed a small stream and descended on the opposite side to Ashkalm, whose inhabitants were outside the village, near a clear spring, washing and shearing their sheep. We had now entered Nordus, a district under a mudir appointed by the Pasha of Wan, and living at a large village called Pirbedelan. Our ride on the following day was over upland pastures of great richness, and through narrow valleys watered by numerous streams. Here and there were villages inhabited by Kurds and Armenians. We were now approaching the Nestorian districts. The first man of the tribe we met was an aged buffalo-keeper, who, in answer to a question in Kurdish, spoke to me in the Chaldee dialect of the mountains. Hormuzd and my servants rejoiced at the prospect of leaving the Armenian settlements, whose inhabitants, they declared, were for stupidity worse than Kurds, and for rapacity worse than Jews. Chilgiri was the first Nestorian village on our way. The men, with their handsome wives and healthful children, came out to meet us. We did not stop there, but continued our journey to Merwanen, which we found deserted by its inhabitants for the Zomas, or summer pastures. Although poor and needy, the people of Merwanen were not less hospitable than other Nestorians I had met with. They brought us, as the sun went down, smoking messes of millet boiled in sour milk and mixed with mountain herbs. The next day we came to a large encampment of Hartushi Kurds, near the outlet of a green valley, watered by many streams, forming the most easterly sources of the Tigris. Abd ur Rahman, the chief, was absent from his tents, collecting the annual salian, or revenue, of the tribe. In his absence we were very hospitably treated, and were witnesses of the activity and industry of the Kurdish community. The mountain rising above us was the boundary between the Pashaliks of Wan and Hapgyari, and the watershed of the Tigris and Zab. On the opposite side, the streams uniting their waters flowed towards the latter river. The first district we entered was that of Lewen, inhabited chiefly by Nestorians. The whole population with their flocks had deserted their villages for the Zomas. We ascended to the encampment of the people of Billy, a wretched assemblage of dirty hovels, half tent and half cabin, built of stones and black canvas. Behind it towered, amidst eternal snows, a bold and majestic peak, called Carnessa Odaole. Round the base of this mountain, over loose stones and sharp rocks, and through ravines deep in snow, we dragged our weary horses next day. The Kurdish shepherds that wander there, a wild and hardy race, have no tents, 
but during the summer months live in the open fields with their flocks without any covering whatever after a wearisome and indeed dangerous ride we found ourselves on a snowy platform variegated with alpine plants the tiny streams which trickled through the ice were edged with forget-me-nots of the tenderest blue and with many well-remembered european flowers i climbed up a solitary rock to take bearings of the principal peaks around us a sight as magnificent as unexpected awaited me far to the north and high above the dark mountain ranges which spread like a troubled sea beneath my feet rose one solitary cone of unspotted white sparkling in the rays of the sun its form could not be mistaken it was mount ararat my nestorian guide knew no more of this stately mountain to him a kind of mythic land far beyond the reach of human travel than that it was within the territories of the muscovites and that the christians called it bashut dama hamda from this point alone it was visible and we saw it no more during our journey we descended rapidly by a difficult track passing here and there encampments of curs and the tents and flocks of the people of jilameric to the green pastures succeeded the region of cultivated fields and we seemed to approach more settled habitations following a precipitous pathway and mounted on a tall and sturdy mule we spied an aged man with long robes black turban and a white beard which fell almost to his girdle we at once recognized the features of mar shamon the patriarch of the nestorians or as he proudly terms himself of the chaldeans of the east he had not known of our coming and he shed tears of joy as he embraced us Kahannes, his residence was not far distant and he turned back with us to the village since i had seen him misfortune and grief more than age had worn deep furrows in his brow and had turned his hair and beard to silvery grey the garments of the patriarch were worn and ragged even the miserable allowance of his three hundred piastres about two pounds ten shillings which the porter had promised to pay him monthly on his return to the mountains was long in arrears and he was supported entirely by the contributions of his faithful but poverty-stricken flock Kahannes was moreover still a heap of ruins at the time of the massacre marshamon sacredly saved himself by a precipitous flight before the ferocious curds of bedekam bay entered the village and slew those who still lingered in it and were from age or infirmities unable to escape marshamon at the time of my visit had no less cause to bewail the misfortune of his people than his personal sufferings the latter were perhaps partly to be attributed to his own want of prudence and foresight old influences which i could not but deeply deplore and to which i do not in christian charity wish further to elude had been at work and i found him even more bitter in his speech against the american missionaries than against the turkish or kurdish oppressors he had been taught and it is to be regretted that his teachers were of the church of england that those who were endeavouring to civilise and instruct his flock were seceders from the orthodox community of christians heretical in doctrine rejecting all the sacraments and ordinances of the true faith and intent upon reducing the historians to their own hopeless condition of infidelity his fears were worked on by the assurance that ere long through their means and teaching his spiritual as well as his temporal authority would be entirely destroyed i found him bent upon deeds of violence and intolerant persecution which might have endangered for the second time the safety of this people as well as his own i strove and i trust not without success to set before the old man his true interest in regard to educating his clergy and people 
circulating the scriptures, reforming abuses, etc. The Nestorian community had greater wrongs to complain of than their patriarch. The Turkish government, so far from fulfilling the pledges given to the British embassy, had sent officers to the mountains who had grievously ill-treated and oppressed the Christian inhabitants, and they had suffered all kinds of outrage and oppression which the rapacious Turks could inflict. There was no tribunal to which they could apply for redress. A deputation sent to the Pasha had been ill-treated, and some of its members were still in prison. There was no one in authority to plead for them. They had even suffered less under the sway of their old oppressors, for, as a priest touchingly remarked to me, the Kurds took away our lives, but the Turks take away wherewith we have to live. We remained a day with the Patriarch, and then took the road to Julemeriv, three caravan hours distant from Kachanis. This town has been more than once visited and described by English travellers. Near Julemeriv, we met many poor historians flying with their wives and children, they knew not whither, from the oppression of the Turkish governors. The direct road by Tiari to Mosul is carried along the river Zab, through ravines scarcely practicable to beasts of burden. It issues into the lower valleys near the village of Lysan. On the banks of the Zab, I found the remains of an ancient road, cut in many places in the solid rock. It probably led from the Assyrian plains to the upper provinces of Armenia. There are no inscriptions or ruins to show the period of its construction, but from the greatness of the work I am inclined to attribute it to the Assyrians. We picked our way over the slippery pavement as long as we could find some footing for ourselves and our beasts, but in many places where it had been entirely destroyed, we were compelled to drag our horses by main force over the steep rocks and loose detritus which sloped to the very edge of the river. Before reaching the first Nestorian village in the valley of Diz, we had to ford an impetuous torrent boiling and foaming over smooth rocks and reaching above our saddle girths. One of the baggage mules lost its footing. The eddying waters hurried it along and soon hurled it into the midst of the Zab. The animal, having at length relieved itself from its burden, swam to the bank. Unfortunately, it bore my own trunks. My notes and inscriptions, the fruits of my labours at one, together with the little property I possessed, were carried far away by the stream. After the men from the village had long searched in vain, the lost load was found about midnight, stopped by a rock some miles down the river. We passed the night in the miserable village of Raban Audicio. On the opposite side of the valley, but high in the mountains, was the village of Saramus. The pathway to it being precipitous and inaccessible even to mules, we turned to Madis, the residence of the Melek, or chief, of the district of Diz. The villages of Diz, like those of the Nestorian valleys in general, stand in the midst of orchards and cultivated terraces. They were laid waste, and the houses burnt during the first massacre. Diz was the first Christian district attacked by Bedekam Bay. The inhabitants made a long and determined resistance, but were at length overpowered by numbers. We continued our journey through a deep and narrow valley, hemmed in by high mountains and by perpendicular cliffs. The Melek met us on the road near the village of Cherichere, or Klissa. The old man had the too common tale to tell us, of oppression and wrong on the part of the Turks. Melek Benyamin implored me to help him in his difficulties, but I could do no more than offer words of sympathy and consolation. Leaving the Melek to pursue his tax-gathering, we rode through a magnificent valley, 
now narrowing into a wild gorge walled with precipitous cliffs then opening into an amphitheatre of rocks encircling a village embedded in trees the valley at length was abruptly closed by the towering peaks and precipices of the jelu mountain at its foot is the village of koresin where we encamped for the night the inhabitants were for the most part like the other people of Diz, in the Zomas or summer pastures. Not far from the Zomas of Diz were the tents of the villagers of Jelu. They also had encamped on the very verge of eternal snow, but within the boundaries of Diz, as there were no pastures on the other side of the pass in their own district. They were better clothed, and showed more signs of comfort, if not of wealth, than their unfortunate neighbours. Many of the men spoke a little Arabic, and even Turkish, learned during the yearly visits as basket-makers to the low country. We were still separated from the valley of Jelu by a shoulder jutting from the lofty Sopadurek mountain. Before reaching this rocky ridge, we had to cross a broad tract of deep snow, over which we had much difficulty in dragging our heavily laden mules. When on the crests of the pass, we found ourselves surrounded on all sides by rugged peaks, the highest being that known as the Taura Jelu, of which we had scarcely lost sight from the day we had left Mosul. It is probably the highest mountain in central Kurdistan, and cannot be under, if it be not indeed above, 15,000 feet. The pass we crossed before descending into the valley of Jelu is considered the highest in the Nestorian country, and is probably more than 11,000 feet above the level of the sea. From the top of the pass we looked down into a deep abyss, the pathway was fearfully dangerous, and over steep and slippery rocks. Down this terrible descent we had to drag our jaded horses, leaving our track marked in blood. I have had some experiences in bad mountain roads, but I do not remember to have seen any much worse than that leading into Jelu. After numerous accidents and great labour, we left a rocky gully, and found ourselves on the slope ending at a dizzy depth in a torrent scarcely visible from our path. The yielding soil offered even a more difficult footing for our beasts than the polished rocks. The wild mountain ravine was now changed for the smiling valley of Jelu. Villages embowered in trees filled every nook and sheltered place. We descended to Zerin, or Zeraini, the principal settlement and the residence of the Melek. To our left were two other villages, Alzan and Meder. As my large caravan descended the hillside, the inhabitants of Zerin took us at once for Turks, whose appearance is the signal for a general panic. The women hide in the innermost recesses to save themselves from insult. The men slink into their houses and offer a vain protest against the seizure of their property. When at last we had satisfied the trembling people of Zerin that we were not Mussulmans, they insisted upon our being Americans of whom they had at that moment, for certain religious reasons, almost as great a distrust. At length they made out that I was the Balios of Mosul, and the Melek arriving at this crisis we were received with due hospitality. Our baggage was carried to the roof of a house, and provisions were brought to us without delay. Although during his expedition to Diari, Khan Bey had seized the flocks of the people of Jelu, and had compelled them, moreover, to pay large contributions in money and in kind, he had not been able to enter their deep and well-guarded valleys. The Nestorians of Jelu have no trade to add to their wealth. Many of the men, however, 
wandered during the winter into Asia Minor, and even into Syria and Palestine, following the trade of basket-making, in which they are very expert. But their travels and their intercourse with the rest of the Christian world have not improved their morals, their habits, or their faith. The district of Jelu is under a bishop, whose spiritual jurisdiction also extends over Baz. He resides at Martha d'Ongla, the village of the church, separated by a bold rocky ridge from Zerian. It was Sunday as we descended through orchards, by a precipitous pathway, to his dwelling. The bishop was away. He had gone lower down the valley, to celebrate divine service for a distant congregation. The inhabitants of the village were gathered round the church in their holiday attire, and received us kindly and hospitably. From a belfry issued the silvery tones of a bell, which echoed through the valley, and gave an inexpressible charm to the scene. It is not often that such sounds break upon the traveller's ear in the far east, to awaken a thousand pleasant thoughts, and to recall to memory many a happy hour. This church is said to be the oldest in the Nestorian mountains, and is a plain, substantial, square building, with a very small entrance. To me, it was peculiarly interesting, as having been the only one that had escaped the ravages of the Kurds, and as containing, therefore, its ancient furniture and ornaments. Both the church and the dark vestibule were so thickly hung with relics of the most singular and motley description, that the ceiling was completely concealed by them. Notwithstanding the undoubted antiquity of the church, and its escape from plunder, I searched in vain for ancient manuscripts. We followed the valley to the village of Nara, where the bishop was resting after his morning duties. A young man of lofty stature and handsome countenance, dressed in the red-striped loose garments of the Kurds, and only distinguished by a turban of black silk from those around him, came out to meet us. A less episcopal figure could scarcely be imagined, but although he seemed some Kurdish hunter or warrior, he gave us his benediction as he drew near. It was difficult to determine whom the poor bishop feared most, the Turks or the American missionaries. The first, he declared, threatened his temporal, the others his spiritual authority. I gave him the best advice I was able on both subjects, and urged him not to reject the offer that had been made to instruct his people, but identify himself with the progress on which might be founded the only reasonable hope for the regeneration of his creed and race. Unfortunately, as in the case of Marshall, strange influences had been at work to prejudice the mind of the bishop. We were now in the track I had followed during my former visit to the mountains. Crossing the precipitous pass to the west of Buzz, which, since my first visit, had been the scene of one of the bloodiest episodes of the Nestorian massacre, we entered the long, narrow ravine leading to the valley of Tacoma. We stopped at Gundokta, where four years before I had taken leave of the good priest Bodaka, who had been amongst the first victims of the fury of the Kurdish invaders. The Kashram, who now ministered to the spiritual wants of the people, the riots of the village, and the principal inhabitants, came to us as we stopped in the churchyard but they were no longer the gaily-dressed and well-armed men who had welcomed me on my first journey. Their garments were tattered and worn, and their countenances haggard and wan. The church, too, was in ruins. Around were the charred remains of the burnt cottages, and the neglected orchards overgrown with weeds. A body of Turkish troops had lately visited the village, and had destroyed the little that had been restored since the Kurdish invasion. The same taxes 
had been collected three times and even four times over. The relations of those who had run away to escape from these exactions had been compelled to pay for the fugitives. The chief had been thrown, with his arms tied behind his back, on a heap of burning straw, and compelled to disclose where a little money that had been saved by the villagers had been buried. The priest had been torn from the altar and beaten before his congregation. Men showed me the marks of torture on their body and of iron fetters round their limbs. For the sake of wringing a few piastres from this poverty-stricken people, all these deeds of violence had been committed by officers sent by the porter to protect the Christian subjects of the Sultan, whom they pretended to have released from the misrule of the Kurdish chiefs. The smiling villages described in the account of my previous journey were now a heap of ruins. From four of them alone 770 persons had been slain. Khan Bey had driven off, according to the returns made by the Meleks, 24,000 sheep, 300 mules, and 10,000 head of cattle, and the Confederate chiefs had each taken a proportionate share of the property of the Christians. No flocks were left by which they might raise money wherewith to pay the taxes now levied upon them, and even the beasts of burden, which could have carried to the markets of more wealthy districts the produce of their valley, had been taken away. We remained at night in Tacoma to see the Meleks who came to us from Tacoma Goaya. Leaving the valley, we crossed the high mountain enclosing Tacoma to the south and passed through Pinyanish into Chal, a district inhabited by Muslims, and which had consequently not suffered from the ravages of the Kurdish chiefs. It presented, with its still flourishing villages surrounded by gardens and vineyards, a vivid contrast to the unfortunate Christian valley we had just left. A rapid descent through a rocky gorge brought us to the Zab, over which there were still the remains of a bridge, consisting of two poles fastened together by osier bands placed across the stone piers. It almost required the steady foot and practised head of the mountaineer to cross the roaring stream by this perilous structure. The horses and mules were, with much trouble and delay, driven into the river, and after buffeting with the whirlpools and eddies reached, almost exhausted, the opposite bank. We now entered the valley of Berwari, and crossing the pass of Amadiach, took the road to Mosul, through a country I had already more than once visited. Leaving the caravan and our jaded horses, I hastened onwards with Hormuzd, and travelling through a night, reached Mosul in the afternoon of the 30th of August, after an absence of seven weeks. End of chapter 19 Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth